Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to Science of the Theater, which is sponsored by Friends of Berkeley Lab and is co-sponsored by the Berkeley Energy Resources uh, Collaborative. And we want to thank all of you coming out for a night on which the Giants are playing. Um, my name is uh, Dan Croats, and I'm in the lab's public affairs department. And this is the uh, second of three in our fall Science of the Theater series, which we've entitled uh, Get Smart About Carbon. And we're calling it that because we want you to come away from these talks with a better understanding of the causes of climate change, what scientists are doing to mitigate it, and definitely, most importantly, what you can do to take action. Um, we hope tonight's topic, uh, Cool Cities, Cool Planets, will do just that. Uh, for the next hour, you'll hear how cool roofs can be used to help you save money, cool your city, and most importantly, help uh, fight climate change. It's actually the perfect uh, think globally, act locally kind of story, and it's central to the lab's uh, principal mission of providing technological solutions to some of the most urgent problems facing uh, the nation and the world today. Um, we are very pleased also to have with us a person who really sets the standard to that approach, providing <laughs> technological solutions to urgent problems facing the nation. And that person is Art Rosenfeld, sitting there over there in the middle. Um, As, uh, as many of you probably know, he's seen by many as the godfather of energy efficiency and in a decades-long career. He is, uh, he's credited with billions of dollars, with a B, in energy savings in California and beyond. He started out as a physicist, but during the uh, 1973 energy crisis, he decided to do something about it, and he literally walked around a building at the lab at night, uh, turning off lights one by one to save energy. Um, and he has been doing something about it ever since. He uh, started a buildings energy efficiency program at the lab, which has gone on to great, great renown. And he just finished a 10-year stint on the uh, California Energy Commission earlier this year. Among his many accolades, uh, Art actually has a unit of electricity savings named after him. Um, a Rosenfeld is the electricity savings of 3 billion kilowatt hours per year, uh, which is the amount needed to replace the annual generation of a 500 megawatt modern power plant. Um, and also the term Rosenfeld effect is used to explain the phenomena in which California's per capita energy usage has essentially remained flat since the mid-1970s, while the rest of the U.S. has gone up by about 50%. So much of that flattening is attributed to Art's work. Also on the panel is Ronan Levinson. He's a staff scientist at Berkeley Lab and acting leader of the Heat Island Group. He has developed cool roofing and paving materials and helped bring cool roof requirements and into building energy efficiency standards. We also have Melvin Pomerantz, a member of Berkeley Lab's Heat Island Group, trained as a physicist at UC Berkeley. He specializes in research on making cooler pavements and evaluating their effects. So, without any further ado, please welcome our first speaker, Melvin Pomerantz. Actually, we don't even need much of a slide, because what I'm going to talk about is a very familiar experience to all of you, and that is the fact that uh, when you go into the center of a city, it's a lot hotter than it is in the suburbs. I, I once lived near New York City, and it was amazing. You would drive into the city, and it was just hot and steamy. 
drive out toward Westchester where I was living, and the, the trees are there, and it's cool, and it was a shocking transition as you leave the city. That effect, namely that the temperature is very different in the suburbs or the rural areas. And as you get toward the center, the temperature, shown here in Fahrenheit, tends to be anywhere from, say, 5, 7 degrees Fahrenheit higher in the center of the city than it is uh, where um, the trees have, uh, st are still there. We, we simply replace trees, which are cool, the forests are pleasant and cool, with man-made surfaces, which tend to be dark and tend to be hot. And so, well, in addition, there's a lot more people concentrated in the center city. That's another effect. But this, that we can't do much about. I mean, people want to live in the center and work in the center of cities. But there is something we can do about the kind of surfaces we put in the city. And that's going to be the gist of this talk. What can we do to kind of relieve this uh, excess heating in the center of cities or where the city is built up? This has not only an effect of discomfort, there's real economic pro problem here, too. What is shown here is the electric power demand in uh, Sacramento. We've got this data from them. This is SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. On a day in July 1999, this is one of their peak days. We picked it not to be typical, but it's a hot day. It went up to, here you see, about 107 degrees that day. And what we show here is uh, their demand starting at, say, 1 a.m. in the morning, 2, 3, 4, 5. The temperature was going down. At about 6 a.m., the sun starts to rise. People wake up. They start turning on electricity, their air conditioners. And as the day goes on, it gets hotter and hotter. And the demand for electricity gets higher and higher until at noon, it's up around 2,500 megawatts. And then at, by 6 p.m., it's, it's up here around 2,700, peaks out, and sort of lingers there as the day cools down and finally it cools down and people sort of go to sleep and turn off their air conditions a little bit. What this means is that th these are the, indicating the number of power plants you would need to generate this electricity. Each power plant being a typical one that was named after, uh, in the Art Rosenfeld effect, uh, a 500 megawatt power plant. So to get uh, this much power, you need at least five power plants close to six, actually, because five will produce you 2,500. So you, five and a half power plants. But you see, the actual power that's being used on a January day is a lot less, half as much. So that means that the power company has to have in reserve all these power plants, which means that there's a, a capital expense to have power plants that you built, but you're not using much of the year. So that's a drag. And then... Uh, Moreover, these power plants that they finally turn on are usually the least efficient, most polluting power plants because you use your most efficient ones to, to, at first. So as you turn on your old plants, you uh, uh, create more pollution and you're using more energy. And it's, a not, it's an unfortunate situation. Now, the heat island effect is, is actually relatively small. Where has my arrow gone? Where has my arrow gone? <laughs> All right, but the heat island effect is typically a few degrees. So what can we do? Well, we can possibly slide down this curve a degree or two. That heat island effect was about five to seven degrees. If we can even slide down a few degrees, 
we can cut off the top of this curve and save uh, much uh, power. The other thing we do is cut down on pollution. And another effect that goes on is the fact that when things get very hot, uh, there are actually deaths caused by excess heating. Uh, the one case that we have some pretty good data on is in Chicago in 1995. Uh, there were 700 or something, 39 deaths attributed to the heat wave that they had. And interestingly, almost all of them, like 700 of those deaths occurred in the top floor of black roof buildings that didn't have air conditioning. So those roofs were very, very hot in the sun. If they had thought to whiten the roof, they could have perhaps saved those people's lives. So there is a health issue here also. And um, so the question is now, what can we do about it? So the, first, the, the basic physics question that uh, some of us are interested in is how is the air heated in the first place? And it's interesting that the sunlight coming in from the sun does not heat the air directly. Uh, I could give you a quick proof of that. When you came into this building, you could look out and see the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is nine miles from here as the crow flies. So that means that what has happened is that sunlight has come from the sun when you look in daylight. Sunlight's come from the sun. It hits the bridge. It comes to your eye through nine miles of air. That's twice the thickness of our atmosphere. And yet, you can see the bridge very clearly on a clear day. So that's kind of an indication that sunlight travels very well through the atmosphere. And in fact, we'll show you know, real data later about that. So how is the air heated? Well, the, the, the way it's heated is the fact that there are opaque surfaces, uh, surfaces that cast a shadow. So what's happened is that the light comes in from the sun. It strikes a surface. Now, this is a light-colored surface. Most of the light is coming back. But some of it stays in the surface. And that much which stays in the surface heats the surface. And then the air comes along and touches that warm surface, the hot surface, and the air gets warm from that. So this is the clue of how we can uh, attack the problem. Because what's uh, going on is that the surface is acting as kind of a converter of sunlight into heat of the air. So if we can get a handle on the surface, we can get a handle on how hot the air gets. The other feature as well is that not only does the roof or pavement get hot, which is actually bad for the roof and the pavement. You see, because uh, it, helps, it, it causes the roof and pavement to deteriorate faster if it gets hot. Moreover, if you have a building underneath the roof, that heat that's uh, been uh, absorbed by the roof that heat travels into the building, and then you have to turn on your air conditioner in some places. Berkeley is an exception. We're lucky. We have a nice, cool atmosphere, too. But, you know, you go to Sacramento, and it would be impossible to live there if you didn't have air conditioning. So um, the point is that it's very much advantageous. Also, pavements suffer if the, it gets too hot. One of the things that designers of pavements worry about is how hot is that pavement going to get. And if it gets very hot, they have to make a better pavement to handle the heat and the deterioration that the heat causes. So there's an extra expense, which we can avoid if we can possibly make the pavement cooler. So one way of characterizing this cooling of the pavement is to study the, what's called the solar reflectance. What 
is the ratio of the light that's reflected compared to the light that's come in. That number uh, is something between zero reflectance, a, a scale of zero, would mean zero reflectance, everything is absorbed. It's black. If you have no light coming out, it's black. On the other hand, if all the light came out, it would be very white. This is the light that comes in, comes out. That's 100% reflecting, solar reflectance. And clearly, if the light is reflected and not caught in the material, it's cooler. So what we're looking for is materials of higher solar reflectance. And indeed, that theory is borne out. Uh, we've done experiments, others have too, of the temperature rise, that is, how much hotter is the surface than the air around it. And if the reflectance is very high, like 100%, like a white surface, it rises a little bit, 5 degrees centigrade, which is um, half as much as Fahrenheit. So. The uh, point is that also if you increase the solar reflectance, or decrease it rather, down to about zero, in other words, it's very black, it's reflect hardly reflecting at all, like black paint, the temperature can rise 50 degrees, which is something like uh, 80 or 90 Fahrenheit. So the, the, above the ambient air, that's your cat on a hot tin roof, really. I mean, you don't want that. Uh, so the, our goal is to try to urge people to use lighter colored materials or find new light colored materials that will make these lower temperatures. And that's the gist of our talk. Uh, there's another feature, and that is that once the surface is warm, like the Earth gets warmed by the sun, it also radiates. But it radiates at a different place. Uh, I'm fond of telling my students, if you, my male students, tell your girlfriend that she glows. It's true. Physics, physically, she glows uh, in the infrared, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you won't see her in the dark. But... She does radiate, and she radiates at a uh, wavelength around in here, whereas the sun is radiating 20 times higher in um, uh, frequency or, or shorter wavelengths by a 20th. Now, here's what I said before, and that is that the sunlight passes through. This is the absorption by the atmosphere. You see, the absorption is extremely low. It's, a, it's one of the reasons we, our planet is so great. Our atmosphere allows the sunlight to pass through. Sunlight. But once it gets converted to this kind of light, uh, there are gases in the air like carbon dioxide, oxygen, water, which absorb this thermal radiation, which we call thermal infrared, and that keeps it like a blanket. And this is the atmospheric greenhouse effect, where this light coming out of the Earth and us uh, is uh, blocked by the gases in the atmosphere. And if you put in too much of these gases, like we're trying to prevent, like carbon dioxide, we increase the absorption and we can heat the earth by that reason. That's the global warming problem. So the, the gist of that problem is that if we can prevent the light from sticking in the surfaces, we, we will reduce this amount of thermal radiation, we'll reduce the amount that's trapped, we'll reduce the greenhouse effect, and if we... If we reduce the greenhouse effect, we keep the planet a bit cooler. And Art Rosenfeld will talk in, in great detail about that. So here is our task. What can we make cooler? And there are, in fact, many uh, dark surfaces in a, a typical city. Here is a patch of Sacramento. And we actually measured just what's going on there. 
some dark surfaces, about 39% of the surface as seen from the sky uh, is uh, pavements. And about 20%, 19% are roofs, usually dark. Uh, now, vegetation is good, and Sacramento has a program for putting in more and more vegetation. But our t job here that we'll talk about is how do we make roofs and pavements cooler, namely more reflective of light. So that's the, this is the introduction to the rest of the talk, namely Ronen Levinson, Dr. Levinson, will talk about how cooler roofs on top of a building directly prevent heat from getting into the building. It reduces the air conditioning that that building needs, which reduces the demand at the power plant, which we talked about, which means less energy is consumed, less carbon dioxide is, is generated, uh, and on the other and those nasty compounds often turn into ozone, which is bad for your health. So Ronan will talk about that. I'll mention the other side of it, namely the heating the outdoor air. Pavements and roofs also heat the outside air. If we can make them cooler, we reduce that outside air temperature ever so slightly, a few degrees, but it can matter. So what that does is reduce the demand inside the house because the outside is cooler. And again, we go through this cycle of reducing electricity demand, energy consumed, pollutants. The other thing that happens if the outside air is cooler is uh, um, that area sources like trees emit fewer of their organic things. This, the, the part of the tree that you smell, that can actually produce, be part of um, pollution. It gets converted into ozone. And the other thing that happens if you reduce the outside air temperature is the reactions that are producing these uh, uh, bad chemicals are slowed down. So you can actually get less ozone. So this is the outline of the talk. And um, I will then, uh, oh, and, and this thing that I mentioned I, that, that Art Rosenfeld will talk about is that if indeed you reflect more of the sunlight, uh, it, it's as though you, you took away some of that blanket because the, the planet will get cooler. The sunlight will travel right out. Uh, and, and, you, and you know that because you can go to Google and, and ask for the satellite view and see your own house. So that means that the sunlight has gone, hit your house and has gone back up to a satellite and passed through the atmosphere. So if you leave it as sunlight, it'll get out very well. So that's what we're trying to do. On the other hand, uh, the other way of getting the, the, the air to be cooler is just to take the greenhouse gases out. So one offset is sort of equivalent to the other as far as heating the planet. And Art will give us uh, his um, ideas on that. So with, with that, I think, I turn it over to Dr. Levinson. I'm going to take you on a little cool roof safari. In other words, what would you see? What might you see? Well, here in North America, we certainly have um, cool roofs. And they're usually white roofs. You might find them on a commercial building because those roofs usually can't be seen from the street. And a white roof on a commercial building is terrific. When new, it could reflect um, about 80% of the sunlight that strikes it. And it will really help keep um, that building's use of air conditioning down. Or, if it's not air-conditioned, it will make it more comfortable on the top floor. Now, in some other parts of the world, you might see white surfaces on pitched roofs. It's not really a North American aesthetic outside of places like Florida, 
Uh, but this is a picture from Bermuda, where they do have a history of white roofs everywhere. And another possibility that you might see here in North America is the cool colored roof. Some kinds of roofing material um, happen to be naturally reflective to sunlight, and others are reflective to sunlight because you've engineered them that way. Now, if you have a white surface on a flat roof, most usually on a commercial building, these have pretty long operating hours, not all that much insulation in the roofing assembly, you could reduce your annual air conditioning energy use by about 15%. If you have a white surface on a pitched roof, then your savings of air conditioning over the course of a year is about 10%. Uh, why? Well, mostly because when you have a pitched roof, it's easier to put insulation into your roofing assembly, and so less heat would tend to flow into the building. If you have a cool colored roof, like this uh, lovely red clay tile roof that's shown here, well, your savings are about half as good on a white roof, and that's because approximately the uh, cool colored roof is about half as reflective as the white roof. Now we've asked the question, what would happen if you were to um, implement a broad program of cool roofs on buildings in the U.S.? And right here I'm going to talk about what would happen if you put white roofs on 80% of the commercial buildings that we have. Why 80%? Well, some of them are already white, so we're being a little bit conservative there. Now the idea is your typical commercial building might have a gray roof that reflects about 20% of sunlight. And you could put on a white roof that when new and shiny, or bright anyway, um, would reflect about 80% of sunlight. But after it gets soiled, it might reflect 55%, 60% of sunlight. Well, we assume from day one that it got soiled because we like our numbers to stand up. And what we found is if you take that 2.1 billion square meters, you can multiply <coughs> by 10 to get square feet, um, of roof that represents 80% of the roofs on commercial buildings in the US, well, each year you'd save um, over $700 million um, in, on your utility bills, and you would reduce emission of carbon from power plants enough to be the equivalent of taking over a million cars off the road, or if you want to think about it in terms of nitrogen oxide, which is a precursor to ozone and smog that Mel was talking about, well, that's the equivalent of taking over half a million cars off the road. Plus, there are savings from things like sulfur dioxide and mercury. But those I can't equate to cars, so I kind of focus on the first two. Now, over the lifetime of a roof, and a roof is typically around for 20 years, the energy savings that you would attain in those 20 years would have a present value, mean it's, uh, what it would be worth right now today, because energy savings in the future aren't worth quite as much as energy savings um, that you incur, say, in the first year. Well, nationally, that would give you $11 billion worth of savings. Now... For the U.S. economy, $11 billion maybe isn't a whole lot of money. Until you realize that, especially for commercial buildings, where your choice is maybe a gray or a black roof or a white roof, there's no extra cost to choosing a white roof when it comes time to replace the roof for ordinary maintenance. Typical roof lasts about 20 years, which means that each year you're replacing about 5% of the U.S. Um, roofing stock. So this is free money, and we all like free money. But white roofs aren't going to work for every building because we just don't accept white roofs on um, those that you can see from the streets. Except in Florida, where they do, and we're going to show you some photos later. So I'm going to um, talk a little bit about what can we do for those roofs that are going to be seen from the street. And the first step is to understand that your eye is very well attuned to see sunlight, but not all of sunlight. 
I've got a little graph here, and I've broken up the solar spectrum into three parts. In the middle here, which I've colored green, this is visible sunlight, and this is what you see with your eye. Over here to the left, this little narrower band, that's ultraviolet radiation. That is very important stuff. It makes colors fade, could give you skin cancer, um, generally damages things. But truth is there isn't all that much solar energy in the ultraviolet spectrum. But if we look out to the right, here's a portion of the near-infrared um, that we call, um, well, it's a portion of the infrared that we call the near-infrared, and it makes up nearly half of the energy in sunlight. Well, why do we care? Because you can't see that. So it doesn't matter how much near-infrared light a surface reflects. That does not change the appearance. So what you could cleverly do is say, okay, we will have the surface reflect in the visible part of the solar spectrum the way that it's needed to make it look the way that you want. But maybe we could do a good job of reflecting these invisible patches of light out here in the ultraviolet and the near-infrared. Well, it turns out that it's very hard to make a surface reflect in the ultraviolet unless it's a bare, shiny metal. Just most surfaces don't. So we kind of write that off. And we focus instead on this nearly half of sunlight that is at wavelengths longer than what the eye can see. Um, and we try to make surfaces reflect as much as possible in that part of the spectrum. Here's a little graph that tries to put a little bit of um, data to that idea. If I have a white roof here, and this is a brand spanking new white roof on some sort of a box store, and I were to measure its reflectance as a function of wavelength over the solar spectrum, and this yellow curve here, that's that solar spectrum that I showed in the last slide. Well, we see that in the visible, it's very reflective, and of course, that's what your eye is telling you, and it looks bright white. Also, though, at these longer wavelengths, it is still pretty reflective. I mean, you don't know that a priori, but you can measure it, and if you were to touch it, you would feel, hey, this is pretty cool. And in fact, a bright white surface reflects over 80% of sunlight, like this white roof here. Now, at the other end, of course, you could have a black surface that reflects almost nothing, but I'm being a little more realistic because there aren't that many black roofs. It's going to be a little more gray. Well, here's a gray roof, and this is reflecting about 25% of the sunlight in the visible and then that reflectance uh, falls down to around 15% as you get towards the longest wavelengths in sunlight. And if you were to take an average, you would find out that weighted with the solar spectrum, it's reflecting um, a little less than 25% of the sunlight. So this uh, brand new white roof, over 80%, this dark gray roof, less than a quarter. Well, in the middle, you can have something like this cool red roof, which I showed in a previous slide. Well, it's not reflecting as strongly in the visible, otherwise it would look white. In fact, it's got this very interesting shape to it which translates to red in the visible spectrum. But in the near-infrared, which doesn't affect color, boy, it's pretty darn reflective. So the result is this cool color, in this case a cool red clay tile, is reflecting about 40% of sunlight. So in a way, it's pretty much um, in the middle between the case of the dark roof and the bright white roof. And frankly, if your neighbors are going to lynch you for putting a white roof on your building, it's not a bad choice. Better than dying, I always say. So let me tell you about some of the cool colored roofs that you might um, see in Home Depot or from your building contractor or just by looking around because there are cool roofs on existing buildings right now. So you can get um, cool concrete tiles. And concrete tile in uh, California, because we have this uh, Spanish style of architecture, is pretty popular. And you can get a cool clay tile. 
you can get cool metal that's not as commonly used on homes, but if you were to look at the roof on, say, fast food restaurants, that's a pretty common choice. And you can also get uh, cool-ish fiberglass shingles, or asphalt shingles, really. I'm going to talk about each, but I thought maybe we should bring up some props and do a little bit of show and tell. So Pablo, our graduate student, is going to come up here and show you a few things. So while he's bringing things up, I'm going to make an interesting point. In this top image here, I have color-matched versions of standard concrete tiles and what we call cool concrete tiles. Now, they've been designed to look exactly the same. But let's look at this extreme case of a black tile. Well, a typical black surface made with ordinary black pigments, like uh, carbon black or iron oxide black, those are things that, you know, if you see anything that's black, it's probably one of those two. Well, it reflects maybe 4% of sunlight. Almost nothing reflects 0% of sunlight unless it's something we call a black body cavity. But ordinary black surfaces, they bottom out around 4% reflectance. Well, if we go for, instead for a cool color in which we are trying to maximize the reflectance out here in this um, near-infrared spectrum, we can do a lot better. In fact, we can make it reflect over 40% of the sunlight. So we've got a boost of 37 points in reflectance. The darker the color is to begin with, the more improvements you can attain with a cool color. And now we're going to have Pablo do a little bit of uh, show and tell. And why don't you talk about what we've got here? Okay. Um, so here, this, these two right here on your right are the asphalt, uh, asphalt jingles. Why don't you go ahead and hold them up? So these right here have a solar reflectance of 26 and a thermal emittance of 91. We'll so skip the emittance. It's okay. We don't need the emittance. Yes. Solar, solar reflectance? Yeah. Solar reflectance of 26. And which is the same solar reflectance of these apple jingles right here. That, that 26 is 26 points or 26% or a little over a quarter of the sunlight. Then we go to a metal, this green metal, and solar reflectance is 41, which is higher than apple jingles. And then we go to the um, clay tile. This is a clay tile right here. And the clay tile has the higher one, solar reflectance of 52. <coughs> right. And then um, these two right here are concrete tiles. They're heavy. And the solar reflectance is 0. 0. 0.17, <laughs> 7, 17, and 20%. 17 and 20%. Are concrete, concrete tiles. And the best, the Lisbon, this is the best one. This, this white one right here, it's a membrane. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a roofing membrane. Um, and the solar reflectance is 88. That's what we all need to have. Excellent. You see, we work on hiring strong graduate students. So, uh, let me, uh, go ahead, you can take them down. We'll have some uh, props out by the, um, there's a table near the entrance, so you can look at some of these things after the talk. Well, one of the interesting cases is that fiberglass asphalt shingle. Why? Well, it's the most common roofing product that goes on homes in North America because it's the least expensive. Now, the surface of a roofing shingle, you know, it, it's fiberglass, it's soaked in asphalt, now it's waterproof. But if you just had um, an asphalt surface on your roof, there are a couple of potential problems. Uh, first of all, it's black. It would mean all your roofs would be black, and people don't necessarily want to see a black roof from the street. 
The other problem is that asphalt tends to uh, crack, uh, mostly from the ultraviolet radiation and sunlight, also a little bit from the visible. So there's crushed rock that's pressed into the surface of that shingle, and that crushed rock has two purposes. Uh, first, it um, protects the asphalt, which is your waterproofing, from the sun, and also it makes it look something other than black. Well, if you've got crushed rock on a surface, um, it's going to be a rough surface, and any rough surface is always less reflective than an equivalent smooth surface, because when light bounces off of a smooth surface, it just escapes. When light bounces off of a rough surface, some of that reflected light has a chance um, to take a second bite at the apple, so to speak. It could be reflected back to the rough surface. So absorption of rough surfaces is always less than absorption of an equivalent smooth surface. Also, these little bits of crushed rock called granules, they're very small. They're maybe half a millimeter to a millimeter in diameter. And it's hard to get a thick coating on something that's small. So there's a pretty thin coating on a rough surface. But there is hope. So let me tell you a little bit about the cool roofs of tomorrow. I've already demonstrated that you can get cool concrete tile, cool clay tile, cool metal, and to some extent, cool shingles. But since asphalt shingles are really the 800-pound gorilla of the residential roofing market, we would like to either offer a better color palette um, or higher reflectance or maybe both. So up here, these are today's uh, cool asphalt shingles. And they're certainly better than an ordinary asphalt shingle. A typical shingle on your home now might reflect 10% of sunlight. So going from 10 to 25% is a significant improvement. But we have a new... Um, prototype process. It's really a different way of applying colorants to the granules. Um, and all of those in this uh, green box here reflect at least 25% of sunlight. So they're all at least as reflective as these uh, brownish and gray samples here. And you can see we've got uh, reds and we've got greens and blues. So just in that alone, we've expanded the color palette. You've got more color choices now. A lot of these... Um, will reflect at least 35% of uh, sunlight, or up to 35% of sunlight. And if you're willing to go with a bright white shingle, because maybe that's fine with you, then this one down here in the corner, um, which I'm showing enlarged here, well, this one reflects 62% of sunlight, so well over 60%. That's pretty good. Now, these are still in development in the laboratory, um, but we've been working with roofing manufacturers, and we hope over the next few years to uh, bring that to market. The other really important area in which cool roofs can get better is we can try to keep them clean without active maintenance. I've got a picture here, and these are two side-by-side -side roofs in Florida, and they've been outside for nine years. And the upper one is a white-painted metal. It's a fluorinated polymer. It's a lot like Teflon in its characteristics of dirt resistance. And the lower one is a elastomeric um, coating over a plastic membrane, uh, a lot like this. And this began as a bright white roof. But after several years, never mind nine years, it's gotten grayish. And if you were to go look at um, exposed white roofs, you'd see this is pretty common. The initial reflectance might have been 80%, but after a couple years, could be 55% in this particular example. Well, what if we could redesign this really common kind of white roof to stay as clean as this less common metal roof? Metal roofing is somewhat more expensive than plastic roofing, so it's just not quite as common. 
Well, the first thing to understand is that those plastic roofs, being plastics, have agents called plasticizers, which can leach to the surface. Well, these leached plasticizers are sticky, uh, which tends to attract soot and soil blowing in the air. Um, they're also very nutritious if you are a microorganism. Things grow on these. Um, and that's why a white roof might, especially in a climate like Florida, uh, turn pretty black after a couple years. So that's no good from our point of view. We're not trying to feed the microorganisms, even though it is a kind of a safari today. Um, now, there are agents that you can add. Um, these are um, called photocatalysts that when they are exposed to sunlight will help break down um, oils and other things and soot that make roof dirty. Um, photocatalysts are already used to help keep windows clean. It's um, pretty popular in Japan. So we can try to add photocatalytic self-cleaning to roofing surfaces like those white membranes. And as another fun thing, when you add these photocatalysts, you can change the way that water flows over a surface. So in some cases, especially for a pitch surface, you might want the water to sheet um, down the uh, roof so that it carries off dirt. So we can modify those properties as well. Now, the bottom line is that if we were to go to these cool colored shingles, we could improve the energy savings that we get from cool shingles by 60%. And if we could go to cleaner white roofs, uh, we could increase the energy savings from a cool white roof by 70%. And that's nothing to sneeze at. So that was my uh, little tour of cool roofing. And now I'm going to turn this back over to Mel, who's going to talk about cool pavements. I just will say a few words about uh, some efforts to uh, make pavements cooler because they are a significant fraction of the city. It's surprising how much. I think I showed before that it might be as much as 35-40%. It depends on the city, but that's about right. Um, because pavements include, of course, not only your streets, and you have also parking lots and driveways and sidewalks and so on, as we'll see. But the first thing you have to understand about trying to change the reflectivity of pavements is that they are a composite material. What you really have here is a, what we call aggregate, namely it's rocks of various sizes, a gradation of rocks, such that when you piece them all together, they can form the shape that you want, go around curves and so on, and, and have a nice, uh, correct shape. So you start out with, these, uh, with this array of rocks, and then you have to hold them together. Otherwise, you have a gravel road, which is not particularly uh, satisfactory for our high-speed travel. So we have to glue the rocks together, rocks and sand and stuff, and make a nice, firm, hard surface. So in order to do that, you coat each grain of rock or each piece of rock with a binder of some sort. Now, in the case of so-called asphalt concrete, what it's saying is that the binder is asphalt, which is a petroleum product. It's this black, sticky material, which when it hardens, uh, is, a, is a very powerful glue and holds the rocks together, and you make an asphalt concrete, asphalt being the binder. We typically call that asphalt, but it really is a concrete, meaning that it's this composite. On the other hand, we have um, the possibility of gluing the rocks together with a cement, a, mi a mineral. It's a mineral product, not a, a petroleum product. And that cement, uh, those kinds of roads we call 
concrete. I don't know why they pick concrete for the cement concrete and asphalt for the asphalt concrete, but that's the way we speak of it. So I, I may kick back and forth between calling it an asphalt road or a concrete road, but they're both composites. But the key thing is that because you're coating each grain, or you're trying to, in order to glue it together, what you see mostly is the color of the binder. So, mostly. So, uh, for example, in the asphalt road, you're seeing the color of the black tar or, or asphalt. In the cement concrete, you're seeing the color of the cement that you use, which typically is much lighter colored. It's a mineral sort of like limestone or something like that. So it can be much lighter in color. That's the key thing. So, again, our target is the um, binder, if possible, because that's what shows at first. Now, of that third of the city uh, that is covered with uh, pavements of various kinds, about 50% are streets that we ride on. There is exposed parking. That is, that it's not in garages and stuff like that. Uh, this would include your own driveways, um, parking lots, malls, what have you. Quite a bit of parking area. 40% of that 35. Uh, and 10% are sidewalks, which are uh, typically cement concrete. But these other roads, typically, as you know, are, are asphalt roads, asphalt concrete, which, as we know, are dark. So because these, these con uh, constitute about 90% of our um, exposed pavement, our real target is to try to make the asphalt concrete lighter colored if we can. And um, we can also take a crack at the cement concrete. But it's uh, simply uh, a smaller target. So what are we starting with? We start with um, fresh asphalt concrete, as Ronan mentioned, a uh, typical black surface. And what's scary is that when people put on a new driveway, they want to make it blacker than black, so they even put carbon in there to make it see my nice black driveway. So the, 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 the reflectance is only about 5%. 95% of the sunlight is absorbed in this fresh uh, asphalt concrete. But as it ages, uh, as Ronan mentioned, um, ultraviolet light will, will break down some of the uh, darkness of the thing, change its color. Also, dirt falls on it and various drippings from your car or what have you. Uh, and it's typically, its solar reflectance goes up to about 15%. So that's what we start with. Now, the question is, can we do any better? Uh, with a new pavement, a new asphalt pavement, one thing you, you could do, well, you've you got a problem because you try very hard to coat every grain with the asphalt so it starts out black. But on the other hand, if you do put in a light-colored aggregate, uh, as the binder wears off, as it will, because it's kind of soft stuff, and eventually it, the light-colored aggregate will show through. And as you know, these roads gray out, as I showed you before. So it's partly due to the exposing of the light-colored rock. Or in some places, like near the seashore, they can use seashells. Say that 10 times fast. Um, and because these white... Or seashells can actually be put in as part of your aggregate. Or porcelain. I mean, you can break up toilet commodes and break them up into small pieces and put them into your roads, and, and they do. So uh, the, you, these white aggregates can be useful in making lighter-colored new pavements. On the other hand, for an old pavement, which would require maintenance and recoating, resurfacing periodically, roughly 10 years, 
Uh, it's possible to do something. There are various things you can do, but one of the simplest is you put on a layer of asphalt emulsion, which is, again, this tarry material. But if you don't stop there and you put the aggregate on top, which you really want to do because the tar itself can be rather slippery. So you can put rocks on top of that and push them into the surface. And so the, the new surface, this new refinished surface, shows the color of the rocks right from the start. That is called a chip seal because it's a seal and you put these chips of rocks on top. Now the big issue with um, roads is that this aggregate is heavy and you don't want to ship it very far because then the cost of shipping it from the quarry where they mine the rock to your location can be very expensive. So you really try to use, for practical purposes, rock that is nearby. And it may not be white. It may be blackish. But, so it, but the point is, if you have a source of white rock nearby, and, you have, and it's the same thing, a dark rock and a white rock, use the white rock. And you will gain the benefit of having a cooler road, which protects the road, actually. Because if the road stays cool, it doesn't rut so much. We have data showing that if you ride over a hot road, uh, it, it uh, deforms more, as you would expect. And so the road gets ruined faster if it's hot. So um, there are limitations, practical limitations of availability of good aggregate, but if you have it, use it. Now here's an example in San Jose, our neighbor city. They happen to have a, a, a quarry nearby that has white, pretty white colored rock, and they use chip seals there. And this, we went out and took a picture of one of the intersections of a side street with the chip seal. And there's another one over here where this car is trying to get on the road. And here they blacktop the road here. So you can sort of see the contrast. This is probably some older gray uh, blacktop road. But you can see this striking difference in color. This road would be a lot, lot cooler. You could walk on it maybe with bare feet. That I, on a hot day, I think I would stay off of that one. Um, so this is one possibility. There are others, but lack of time will uh, have to pass over them. The other type of road, uh, as I say, a little less common, is cement concrete. And as we say, it starts out, because the cement itself tends to be rather light-colored, it starts out with a solar reflectance typically about 35%, which is pretty reflective. So a new road would look like that. But as time passes, dirt falls on the road, oil, this and that, tree droppings and all kinds of stuff. The road tends to get darker, and its solar reflectance goes down to about 20%, say. Depends on the location. But uh, can we do anything even about this? Well, yes. One of the things you can do is simply use what's called light-colored fine aggregate. It turns out that when you make the cement road, the fine aggregates, the, the, the little sandy stuff, tends to flow to the top. So if you make that uh, whitish, you forget about maybe the, the large aggregate, but if the, the white fines are uh, light-colored, you can go from maybe 35 to 40%. You can gain something. Uh, there's another thing, which is slag, which can be used as part, replacing part of the gray cement. This is a byproduct of steel production, but it turns out it makes a quite good cement. And if you put in about 50%, you can make, get an uh, initial solar reflectance of about 60%. It's quite good reflecting. And there also is possible to, to find uh, cements which have very few colored impurities in them. So you can actually make a very white cement. And you, if you build a road out of that kind of cement, its initial solar reflectance can be as high as 70%. And, of course, it will degrade in time. 
So there are possibilities for making even our roads wider and uh, more reflective and therefore to the city a little bit cooler. And now I have the honor of uh, introducing Art Rosenfeld. So I'm going to take over at this stage of the game and uh, bring us into modern times with a real problem of global warming and ask the following. Uh, 2,000 years ago when there were buildings, uh, it became important to ask, uh, how can I keep my building cool? A uh, few hundred years ago when there were large cities, the question was, uh, uh, can I figure out how to keep my city cool? And now the question is, can I figure out how to keep my planet cool? Uh, before I do that, I want to uh, whiz around the world and show you that um, you can have a lot of fun with Google Earth. Uh, my, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to the, my picture of the Pentagon in a moment, but that was fun. Um, Ronan showed you this uh, example of sloped roofs, which are popular in Bermuda, because uh, there aren't a lot of big rivers on a small island. Uh, rainwater is short. People collect it on a nice, clean, white roof and uh, use it for their water supply. Uh, that's a Greek island. There it's so popular that um, even the sides of the buildings are cool. That's Hyderabad. Uh, in India, when it isn't raining, people like to sleep out on the roof. And if the roof has uh, stayed somewhat cool during the day, then it's not so darn hot at night. And so uh, white, is, white roofs are getting pretty much in vogue. Um, that's a Walmart store. In 2005, Walmart looked into the economics of uh, white roofs to save air conditioning because they last longer than dark roofs and decided it was time to switch. Uh, they've done 4,500 of these box stores so far, including overseas. They got 1,500 to go. That's UC Davis. Uh, I might mention, I'll say it in its appropriate place before, but since 2005, uh, the Energy Commission's Title 20 new buildings and retrofit standards have required that if a roof is flat, as Ronan said, no visible architectural issues, uh, it shall be white. That's in the commercial code. It will go into the residential building code, which has, still have a number of flat roofs uh, in 2012. So uh, that's what a modern city is looking like from a satellite. Uh, that's uh, the University of Tucson in the middle. Uh, nice white roofs or some nice, cool colored tiles. But notice now that the residential areas around the side of this quadrangle are mainly white because people know in Phoenix and in Tucson that it's really hot, and uh, Ronan mentioned Florida. Uh, speaking of Florida, that's uh, modern, probably a lot of retirees with their nice white sloped roofs. They're not scared of them, and uh, uh, boats on their marina. Uh, that's Washington, D.C., which, as the caption says, has some problems. Um, there are some whites, there's the dome of the Capitol, there's the Supreme Court, but when you get to these House and Senate office buildings, they're all green, they can't be seen from the street, uh, and uh, uh, I have some friends who are worrying about that now. 
Um, this is sort of interesting. Um, well, this nice white building is the aerospace building, which puts to shame this roof here, which is a national headquarters of the Department of Energy. <laughs> I showed this slide at a symposium in Berkeley in, in uh, Davis in uh, February. And later, later on, the Secretary of Energy called me up and said, Arch, you'll be happy to know that uh, uh, I'm putting out a memo in June that all DOE roofs uh, and replacement roofs shall be white, and the forest oil building is going to be done in October or November. Okay, uh, what about the Earth? Let me remind you that uh, part of the temperature of the Earth right now is determined by ice and snow. Uh, we have a Greenland ice cap, which is uh, decreased in size. We have uh, Arctic sea ice, which is decreased in size. Um, if we can uh, add a little bit of white, um, that would be useful. Um, Cities now comprise about 2% of the world's land area, which incidentally means they cover an area about the size of the state of California. And uh, it would be nice if we could make some of that white. So this is not to explain Mel's Pomerantz has gone through it. Uh, I just want to say the words again that we're getting into. Um, this is incoming sunlight, the more of it you can make bounce up and escape through the transparent atmosphere and go back into space where we would like it to go, the better off we are. If it gets absorbed, it gets degraded into heat, and uh, then it gets trapped by the greenhouse effect. Um, and if you stop to visualize this, um, there are lots of greenhouses, particularly around the Mediterranean, where they work very well in the winter, thank you, and they tend to overheat in the summer. And greenhouse managers all know that you then whitewash the glass on the greenhouse. That reflects the light as light, and it doesn't get into the greenhouse, uh, and it doesn't make the plants overheat, and it works fine. And so uh, that's what we're trying to do. Now, atmospheric uh, climatologists have... Uh, been aware of this issue for years, and back in the 1980s, when cities occupied maybe one quarter of the world's uh, land area, uh, Jim Hansen published a paper asking <clears throat> whether cooling cities would make an appreciable difference in the greenhouse effect. Um, he got an answer less than a tenth of a degree, and we weren't so scared those days, and so, um, well, that was a hard sell. Um, all that uh, started this uh, current furor over white roofs is just a small calculation which <clears throat> Hasha Makbari, uh, Ronin's former boss uh, at the Heat Island Group in, at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, um, and I and a, an Indian friend, um, asked, maybe there's a better way to sell this. Um, a tenth of a degree actually isn't crazy since we're going to spend trillions of dollars and break our backs uh, trying to keep it down to two degrees, but it's still not a good sell. So we asked instead, look, carbon dioxide reflects heat, and that's called a positive radiation forcing onto the ground, 
and white roofs reflect heat. And let's set the two equal and see how much CO2 heating we've offset with uh, a questionable tons, number of tons of CO2. Well, the advantage to that is the carbon dioxide has a price. It's interesting. We're trying to control the temperature. We do it through carbon dioxide, but of course it's the carbon dioxide that has the price and not the, not the, the bad product, which is the temperature. But that's the way air quality managements go. So we've got to do it per unit. Uh, I, I could give you the answer in per square foot, but it wouldn't be a good sell. Um, I can give you, to make things sound a little more plausible, the amount of carbon dioxide emissions offset by 1,000 square feet, which is the size of a modest house without a garage, although we're talking mainly about commercial space, which is 100 square meters in technical units in Sistema Internacional. And that turns out to be 10 tons of CO2. Well, now that's, that's a little more interesting. Um, CO2 is trading on the European exchange for about $25 a ton now, so 10 tons is 250 bucks. Uh, that's enough to begin to make an incentive for actually doing the right thing. Um, supposing we now multiply this 10 tons by about 3 billion, because there are about 3 billion of these units of roof in urban centers where white roofs are already useful, uh, if you've listened and been convinced by my two previous colleagues. Then it turns out that you save, or you avoid the heating effect of, you offset the heating effect of 25 billion tons of CO2. That's over the life of the roof, and it's hard to figure out. It, it, it would be equivalent to turning off the world, the whole world, all the emissions, annual emissions of the world for eight months. But that's, that's not conceivable to me anyway. We have to turn it into some sort of a rate. So I'm going to take the 25 billion tons and say the roof lasts 20 years, so that's over a billion tons a year. What does a billion tons mean? Well, now we got it per year, and we can say, we can com mix, we can con compare that with uh, familiar things, like your house emits about 10 tons a year, or your car emits about 5 tons a year. And uh, uh, cars worldwide probably are a little more efficient than American cars, so let's say 4 tons a year. Well, that turns out to be 300 million cars off the road equivalent for 20 years. Uh, there are only 600 million cars on the road right now in the world, so that's half the cars in the world off the road for 20 years. Um, luckily, I'm an old friend of uh, Steve Chu's, the Secretary of Energy, who was familiar with this calculation before he became Secretary of Energy and has been noising it around the world. And... Uh, one word, one sentence from Steve Chu gets as much publicity as uh, a lecture to you folks from me. So um, we're embarked in a sort of worldwide campaign to try to convince developing nations who are building like mad to put white roofs into their building standards. So what to do now seems to be first to try to get other states to follow California I'll tell you what that means in a moment. Uh, but I guess I better tell you right now. I, I'm going to repeat the present state of uh, 
building standards in California. And I said that starting in 2025, the, uh, 2005, the commercial code was modified to say a flat roof shall be white, and uh, most roofs are flat, so that's really a good summary of the code. Um, in 2008, the residential code was addressed, and for the five hottest climate zones, we have 16 climate zones in California. For the five hottest climate zones, it was required that uh, sloped roofs, uh, visible from the street, shall be cool colors. Um, it didn't pay yet to, to go into the Los Angeles basin, but that's next. And the prices will come down. Right now, there's a shortage of uh, cool-colored roofing materials uh, because of the standard, but uh, prices will come down as volumes go up. And... Uh, that will spread across the states. And uh, I'm going to not have time to talk about this now, but maybe during the question period it will come up. Um, but California is revising its building standards to include this so-called externality of CO2 on all its building optimizations. So there's Title 24. There's cool-colored roofs. Uh, Arizona and Florida and Georgia have followed suit. Um, the problem is most of the United States, the hot part of the United States, let's say, well, I lived in Chicago for 10 years, and I would say Chicago summers are pretty hot. Um, you saw that sea of black roofs that you saw earlier on row houses. Um, and as far north as, as far south on the continent as maybe San Paolo. Um, United States relies on model building codes put out by outfits by the strange names of ASHRAE and IEEC, International Energy Efficiency Code. And um, states are not required to adopt them. States can make them stronger and adopt them. States can uh, still, some states, Texas is still, uh, has no codes whatsoever except for the cities who have taken the lead. So it's important to beef that up. And... Uh, DOE is busy figuring out how to uh, exert a little more pressure on the states to get modern. Uh, ASHRAE and IEEC will uh, prescribe white roofs in their next editions. They come out every three years. Um, the th situation is really quite encouraging. It's getting a lot of momentum. Uh, EPA, uh, Ronan showed an EPA list of uh, energy, cool roofing materials. Uh, that's been available since 2005. Uh, DOE is going white, as I said. Uh, the Marine Corps is going white, as I said. Um, Dow Chemical started a competition in Philadelphia, and uh, the block that won out of 2,700 blocks that participated, uh, every house on the block volunteered to uh, accept a white roof, courtesy of Dow Chemical. Um, we're going to, my, my last point is we're going to launch a private club called 100 Cool Cities, in which we are going to, with some DOE help, um, approach the 100 largest cities in the world. That gets you down to, down to a population of about 2 million. Um, and ask them uh, if they would like to join a, 
and to be willing to at least address the problem of gurus, convince themselves that uh, it's cost-effective to do that, put it into their building standards, and think about enforcing their building standards. Um, in next spring, uh, Secretary Chu is going to a semi-annual meeting of the energy ministers of the G20, which is the group that the United States belongs to, which is uh, trying to make offers, voluntary offers, to do something about climate change. And he's going to offer technical assistance to any country, or let's say the first five countries, which will sign up uh, to address this issue. And so this is um, the environmental groups whom we hope to coalesce together in this whole 100 Cool Cities program. Um, this is the Sierra Club, um, which has a number of offices around the world now. This is the Clinton G40 uh, collection of uh, 40 offices in the 40 largest cities of the world who want to collaborate with us. Uh, this is the Energy Foundation, whom we want to get some money from. Uh, Alliance to Save Energy, U.S. Green Building Council, ICLE. Is Nancy Skinner here? Uh, ICLE, with whom Nancy Skinner worked for years, uh, the Climate Group, the American Council for Energy Efficient Economy, and so on. Uh, so we have great hopes, uh, starting with this uh, initial help from the Department of Energy. So um, there are things we can do, but uh, California has one last thing you can think of. The Title 24 building standards uh, are doing 90% of the job for us. Over 20 years, California flat roofs will go white. Uh, in California, it's so sunny that it actually pays, in many cases, to take a roof which is not leaking yet, which is not needed for repair, but still has, let's say, 10 years of life or more. And it turns out you save so much electricity from a white roof that uh, it pays to go ahead and white coat, whiten your roof, uh, even though it's uh, relatively new. Now, that's something that those of you who have uh, some control over the buildings you work in may want to suggest to the facilities manager to look into the economics. So things are moving along nicely, and thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much to Art, Ronan, and Melvin. I'm sure there's uh, lots of questions, and I'll kick off the Q&A portion uh, by introducing and then handing the mic to Assemblymember Nancy Skinner, who's with us in the audience today. Uh, she's been a leader on a, a number of climate change policies uh, initiatives since her uh, time on the Berkeley City Council and as founder of the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. She continues to lead on a wide range of environmental initiatives as chair of the Assembly Rules Committee, chair of the Select Committee on Renewable Energy, and member of the Natural Resources Committee, among other capacities. Thank you. And uh, we. No. Uh, I just came off 10 years of the Energy Commission. The last two, Nancy was there, and she got more legislation than we needed done in those two years than uh, we got done in the previous few. Uh, it's been a great pleasure.
Well, and we have to salute Art for being the person who made sure that in our Title 24 in California's building code that the white roofs is now there. And uh, actually, it's really refreshing to be home in Berkeley and to listen to scientists rather than the hot air I often hear in Sacramento. And my question is, and Art, you already stole some of it, but I was going to ask you, given that I'm a legislator and uh, you know I have some influence over California policy, what is it that people like me can do to make California cool? And I think you just answered about roofs, but perhaps you or the other panelists could talk a little bit about pavement. Um, what can I say except you're 100% right? The, the Caltrans, well, the problem is it's fine for Mel Pomeranz to appear in Berkeley and point out the advantages of cool pavements, but unless, unless Caltrans gets behind it, um, and issues documents and white papers showing that, in fact, the life cycle of concrete roads is better anyway than asphalt. Um, nobody will pay any attention. C city councils are used to listening to Caltrans or the U.S. Department of Energy and not to us scientists. And uh, get a line item in the budget for Caltrans to address white roofs. I'm sorry, cool pavements. Hi, um, this is actually for Dr. Levinson. Um, I was wondering about... Uh, wh where are you? Oh, I'm over here. <laughs> to your left. <laughs> to your left. <laughs> ah, yes, Sorry. okay. Um, I was wondering about comparing solar paneling on roofs and the energy savings and the environmental savings, um, comparing that to white roofs. Like, how would they be compared? Right. Well, the thing is that solar panels are pretty expensive. Um, you're looking at on the order of $10,000 per kilowatt of power that you get. And a large home might be on the order of a 10 kilowatt system. So you're looking at an investment on the order of $100,000. Of course, it could be less if you're requiring less power. To go from an absorptive roof to a cool roof, um, a reflective roof rather, can cost nothing if it's time to replace the roof. And in fact, in many cases, you can do both because you'll typically want to, if you're going to have some solar panels on your home, you want to put them on the, if it's a pitched roof, on the highest parts of the roof, those that are not going to be shaded so much. And you're not going to usually occupy the entire roof with solar panels because um, it's something... 20% is the average. Yeah, so about a fifth of your roof. Um, in fact, what we commonly see right now on commercial buildings is it's a combined approach where when it's time to put on new solar equipment, they will put down a white membrane roof into which solar panels are built in and occupies some fraction of that. It's called a building integrated photovoltaic. And uh, if you look at some aerial pictures, you can see a fair number of those. If you're going to um, put a PV on your home with a pitched roof, it would probably go... Uh, towards the crest of the roof. So cool roofs, almost free, if it's time to replace the roof. PV's pretty expensive, um, but there's room for both. Um, my name is uh, Bruce. I have a question and a comment about a gadget. Uh, the question is that uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there were people who discovered that the lotus plant had, uh, has little hairs on it, and companies which were making paint, which they tried to sell to me in Germany, uh, which would stay clean because uh, the, the dirt would wash off. And I was just wondering what the present situation is for this, um, 
for this type of covering, it wasn't the thought of being necessarily white, but just to keep keep clean. And um, and the co the comment is that this this little gadget here is um, is a th uh, infrared telescope. It's a thermometer, and uh, the idea is that you can take um, take an infrared measurement of the um, if you go to buy your tile roof from a man who puts it out in the, in, the, in the sunlight, then you can go around and just see which one has the lowest temperature. Just by, And so the temperature of the roof here is uh, 22.5 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, the colleague here's temperature is about 29 degrees through the sweater. And so, you, so you can use that for shopping. But what's happening with the lotus uh, wallpaper or, or house? Sure, sure. Actually, I'm not an expert in that, but I did see a colleague show some interesting properties of um, some um, plant surfaces. Truth is, I don't really know about that. Um, I will make a comment about the infrared uh, thermometers, which what you're describing is that those are very commonly available in hardware stores. So if you were kind of curious to know how hot is that wall or roof or even, you know, uh, the painted surface of a car, um, it's a very easy way to measure surface temperature. Actually, it's a lot easier than using a contact thermometer. So um, people will also um, use infrared imagery to understand how much heat is leaking through the shell of their building. So, for example, people in winter might want to know um, where are there gaps in the insulation in my wall or in my roof, and they'll take an infrared picture, and where they see hot spots are typically where heat is flowing from the inside of the building to the outside. So... Infrared thermometry is, in fact, a really good way to try to understand what's going on in your building. Um, I have one comment which is uh, uh, slightly tangential but occurs to me as being worth mentioning. One of my thousands of slides I didn't show is two Priuses which are parked outside of an exhibition center in Tokyo last year. They're both blue, looking identical. One is cool blue. Uh, one is uh, regular blue. And uh, the cool blue one runs skin temperature 18 degrees centigrade, so 30 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit, cooler than the other. If all cars did that, well, uh, I will finish the sentence and then correct myself. If, if all cars did that, you could downsize the air conditioner and save on the first cost of the car. Now, actually, um, the manufacturers are a little scared of cool-colored paints because they have a white undercoat on, under your, your beautiful new red or blue cool color, and they show scratches worse. But I assert that the roofs of cars have very few scratches. I've never seen a parking lot incident where the roof of a car got scratched. Uh, I think uh, Morris Minnie uh, got that idea some time ago. If you don't specify the wrong color, they will supply your Morris with a white roof. Uh, you may notice that all school buses in California, in fact, uh, all passenger buses in California have white roofs. Uh, I was in India recently on an air a non-air-conditioned uh, train, which was stinking hot, had a blue roof. So uh, one of the things I talked over with the Minister of Transportation was Indian trains should have white roofs. Uh, but there are lots of applications, actually, of common sense to uh, things other than 
the roofs of buildings. I have a 20-year-old uh, asphalt shingle roof that doesn't leak or anything, and I was contemplating painting it, not myself, but painting it with white, and if so, is there any special paint that you should use? And then a side issue to that, once you have the white roof, do you have to heat a little more in the winter because it's reflecting the sun away? I'm going to take one of those and give the, the first question to Ronan. Um, I, I'm very glad you asked that question about heating. And at first, it sounds like a serious question. And in fact, uh, I heard one admiral dismiss the whole idea because of the winter penalty. Um, this is one place where the law of perversity fails. In the, in the summer, the sun is high in the sky, and it sees mainly the roof and doesn't care about, barely sees the south wall. In the winter, at our latitude, uh, United States latitudes, the sun is low and sees mainly the south wall and couldn't care less about the roof. So uh, the winter penalty is something we put into the economics. Uh, Ronan is the author of a paper which calculated the winter penalty for 16 climate zones. And uh, the winter penalty runs from 5% in Louisiana to 25% in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, although I'm not greatly selling white roofs in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, but uh, the, the, the winter penalty is, is, is well known, put into the economics, and not serious. Now, Ronan, there was a... Sure. Well, let me just one or two more things on that uh, part of your question. First, when we figure out what are, what's the value of the energy savings that you get, for example, some of those numbers that I showed before... Well, what that is, that's the value of the savings of air conditioning minus the extra cost you're going to incur from additional heating that might be required in the winter. So we do factor that in already. One of the fun things to notice is that on a horizontal surface, a typical low-slope roof you might have on a commercial building, well, as you go further north, say north of uh, 40 latitude, so we're talking about you know roughly upper third of the U.S., we're at 37 north right now, um, you get about three to five times as much daily sunlight in summer as you do in winter um, for a couple reasons. The sun is low. Also, the sky is pretty cloudy in winter. So there isn't that much sun available to heat your roof in the winter in the first place. So you're not losing that much sunlight. Also, once there is snow on your roof, it doesn't matter what color the roof was. Your roof is white. That's right. Well, actually, every part of the U.S. is different. We, we did this um, exhaustive study around the U.S. to try to figure out what would the savings um, uh, be, your net savings, and we've got some lovely maps that we can show you, but I didn't want to take up the time right now. But it turns out that in virtually every part of the U.S., putting a white roof on a commercial building instead of a gray roof saves you money, even in places that are pretty far north, even in most of Alaska. But don't try selling it. Right, but, but we're not that excited because in places like Alaska, there might be some net savings, but it's a very small net savings, so it really wouldn't matter much. Kind of like Berkeley. You could put a white roof on your um, building in Berkeley, and you might get some savings, but it wouldn't be that much because you don't need that much air conditioning here. That's why we live in Berkeley. Um, now, about your uh, really practical question about what to do with your 20-year-old shingle roof. That's mechanically sound, right? You don't want to get... yeah. Now, for most kinds of roofing materials, uh, you can coat them. The one that's in dispute is unfortunately the one that's most common on homes. Argument goes like this. 
yes, you could take, um, there are special coatings, by the way, for roofing products. You never want to use exterior house paint. That's meant to stick to wooden walls. Wooden walls don't have a lot of water standing on them, and um, they're not asphaltic. So, um, also, um, when you put on ordinary house paint, it's a pretty thin layer, even exterior paint. When you're putting a coating on a roof, like uh, some of those white um, horizontal roofs that we showed before, that kind of coating is about five to ten times thicker than a typical exterior house paint. And you can go buy them at a Home Depot. They're called elastomeric roof coatings. Now, before you put this on the roof of your home, there's a bit of a debate going on between the companies that make these elastomeric coatings um, and the companies that make roofing shingles. And the people that make roofing shingles say, well, look, my roofing shingle, it's not one continuous surface. It's a bunch of shingles nailed over each other. And they allow the building to breathe. That is, um, gas can move um, through the little spacings between the shingles. If you put a solid coating over it, my roof can't breathe anymore and it's going to fail earlier. The people that make the coating say, this is nonsense. The people that say, make the shingles say, well, you can call it nonsense, but you're going to void my warranty. So at this point in time, I do not encourage people to go put elastomeric coatings on shingle roofs until that dust settles. Maybe it will settle one day. For all other kinds of roofing products, though, um, for example, tile or um, metal, um, you can certainly go uh, recoat them if they are, say, darker than you want right now, and you want to have a cool color or a white surface. There's no mechanical issue there. There's no voiding of warranties. Well, actually, you'd be surprised. Um, they are prorated, so they fall down um, in value, but lots of shingles today are sold with 40-year warranties. Of course, I'm not sure that I would expect the company to be around in 40 years. <laughs> Um, or even know where the papers were after 40 years, but still. I have two questions. One regarding using lighter pavement for roadways. What would be the glare factor for motorists? And my other question is, as an uh, honorary member of the American Institute of Architects, I started writing about this issue 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. And why did it take the architects and building engineer industry this long to favor up to the idea of white roofs, or did it take legal action to do it? Because they were resistant and rather tradition-bound in their own industry. Well, I'll take the easy one. Um, <laughs> we have a historical figure here who can answer the historical question. Uh, the glare, it, um, I like to put it this way, that that experiment is being done millions of times a day on cement concrete roads. I mean, super highways are made of cement concrete. And uh, no, I don't see people pulling off the road being blinded by the glare from uh, cement concrete roads. So uh, I, it's in, not much of an issue. Fact, I'm going to emphasize that point a little bit. Please. Um, I used to commute uh, weekly from, for 10 years from uh, Berkeley, to San, Berkeley to Sacramento. So I know Highway 80 intimately. <laughs> um, despite what Mel said, it, if, you, if you actually keep track of it, there are many different segments, but I would say it's one-third asphalt and two-thirds yep. mm -hmm. concrete. And uh, if you ask people when they ask your question, 
what color was the freeway when you drove from San Francisco? They don't have a clue. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. That's a, that's a good answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, the fact is, you know, even black asphalt can be very reflective. At, if you go at the end of the day and the sun is low in the sky, I've noticed that, that, that it can be quite glary. It depends on the angle of the sun. Even black asphalt can be quite glary. Uh, so it, it, it's, I don't think it's really a problem. Most, don't, all of us have driven on these roads, and you don't get blinded. We're not talking about making them into mirrors. You know, it, it, It's going to be... Even 50% reflecting, I don't think, will give us too much trouble. But it's a good question, and it has to be answered. And I think that the experience, our own experience, we, we've all done that experiment already, and I think it's okay. Could I add a little bit? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, about reflective pavements. You can actually see right now examples of bright white pavement if you look at Jersey barriers that are used on highways to prevent people from crossing over into the median. Now, I don't think we're proposing here that um, highways should be as bright white as that, but there is a lot of room for improvement. What's interesting is that many roads have the opposite problem, which is that they are too dark at night, so it requires an awful light of artificial, an awful lot of artificial street lighting to make it work out, and this uh, issue, for example, for parking lots. So there are cases where there's going to be an extra benefit, never mind the whole idea of cool communities, which is reduced consumption of electricity at night. For illumination. Now, uh, Art, would you like to field the other part of that question about architecture? The other point I'd like to make, since uh, some of us are of, uh, advancing, no, no, we aren't age, but uh, uh, you know, to see street signs, to see street signs, if you have a better reflecting road, the light from your headlights will reflect off the signs better, and uh, people whose vision is not up to what it used to be can see the signs better. So there's a safety factor which may actually benefit people. I think I know that it took a new generation of architects who got taught some, something about environmental controls in their courses and not just about facades. But um, I, what, what, what fixed it was, in fact, not regulation, not uh, legislation, but just regulation. That is, when I first started talking about the advantages of white roofs with the California Title 24, Title 24 staff, um, they were uh, uh, convinced in half an hour that it was the right thing to do. And uh, we did it, and nobody, uh, for, for flat roofs where there isn't any architectural issue, uh, n- nobody has really bothered to complain. The, the people who uh, made a living in putting black roofs on flat putting black roofing on flat roofs uh, have presumably gone to Texas. But uh, apart from that, and the handwriting was on the wall, um, I don't think there's been a... I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessary to inform the whole public. It's just a new tradition which seems to be working fine. I would like to add one more point to that before we wrap up. It turns out that what architects specify and what developers offer as choices depends a lot on what they perceive as the demand from their clients. Um, you know, typically, a developer um, will be presented with some sort of a color palette for maybe a residential development, um, and that's what they go with. If people decide that what they want are reflective roofs, that 
percolates upward. And in fact, um, one thing that you might want to do, we've got a cool communities um, program at Berkeley Lab, and it's to encourage the voluntary adoption of things like uh, cool roofs and cool pavements. And within about a month or so, one of the websites up there, Cool California, and you go to coolcalifornia.org, is going to have resources available um, to help homeowners um, find cool roofs um, if they're in the market for them. And um, actually quite a few products that are out there right now. So it's what you ask for is what you eventually get. Thanks again to Art Ronan and Melvin for coming up. And thank you for coming out to uh, tonight's event. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.